What we're trying to do now at Dayumbra is solve that problem of how can an agent or a robot understand the world at a fundamental level the way human children do. So the trick that we're trying to do is we're trying to make characters that play well, but we're restricting them to use these fundamental concepts that children use so that when we move from one game to another, everything transfers over. Hey everyone, welcome to Brains Behind AI, the show where we meet the innovators, entrepreneurs, and the real brains behind some of the most successful AI startups. We ask them about their journey from coming up with the idea to finding the product market fit, and from their experience, draw a set of principles that we can take away to ours. This is your host, Ari. Thank you for spending time with us. And now, let the show begin. Ladies and gentlemen, I couldn't be more excited to have with us Jonathan Mugan today. Jonathan is a principal scientist at Diambra, where he is applying deep learning and AI to problems in spatial and relational reasoning. We will learn more about it on our show today. Jonathan is also a co-founder of Deep Grammar, a grammar checker that's based on deep learning. He's an adjunct professor at University of Texas at Austin an advisor to Kung Fu AI, AI services company in Austin, Texas as well. Jonathan is also an author of Curiosity Cycle, a book for parents and educators on how to prepare our children to be lifelong learners, which I think we can dedicate a whole show to. But today we are going to focus on Diambra. So with that, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. Before we start, can you take a few minutes to introduce our audience to your background, how did you get into Diambra? What led you to it and how your background prepared you for it? Yeah, so I um, was always interested in the human brain or why we do the things we do or what makes us human. So I went to get a degree in psychology and at Texas A&M in the 90s. And it turns out that we didn't really know what makes us human or why we do the things we do. It's, it's just we don't know. And so I got a little disillusioned and I got an MBA and I started working for a big six consulting firm. And then I started talking to people and hearing that, well, AI is one way to maybe get at this problem. Because what, what made me uh, sad about the things I was learning about in psychology is they, everything was at too high a level. It was either too high a level of, oh, this person thought that maybe it's because of this. Or it was too low of a level, like it was, you know, this neuron connects to this other neuron. And there wasn't any kind of broad theory in between. And I thought, well, AI might be a great way to do that because you actually have to build what's going on in between. So I uh, went back to school. I got a, a master's degree in computer science. And then I, that they enabled me to get into UT Austin, where I got my PhD and there I studied how can a robot wake up in the world and knock objects around and start to form theories about everything that's happening around it. After that, I did a brief postdoc at Carnegie Mellon. I moved to Pittsburgh and my wife said, okay, I'm coming. But then she said, you know what? I'm not moving to Pittsburgh. So <laughs> I had to find a job in Austin. And luckily there was a company in Austin that was doing some AI work 
for the Department of Defense. This is the company that ultimately became Dayumbra. Along the way, I did a, a startup with, with Deep Grammar where we do grammar checking. But at Dayumbra, we, we did a lot of different things for the Department of Defense and a lot of different technologies, a lot of different AIs. And recently, within the last couple of years, we settled on going back to that core problem I was trying to solve during my PhD, which is how can you have an, an agent or a robot that actually understands our world? As, as a lot of us may know, NLP became really hot after deep learning enabled it to do things it couldn't do very well before. Like machine translation was always a bit of a joke. Um, you could take it and do these like translate something into German and then translate it back into English and it would just be hilarious what you got in the outcome. But then with deep learning, that actually started to work. And so people got excited about deep learning for NLP, but we found that it still has limitations that NLP doesn't work unless you have some fundamental understanding of the world. So it doesn't work for things like chatbots because as soon as you go off of the script, the robot just becomes incredibly stupid. So what we're trying to do now at Dayumbra is solve that problem of how can an agent or a robot understand the world at a fundamental level the way human children do. That's very interesting. What steps are you taking? How are you sort of reconnecting that, that bridge that exists between chatbot that's more rules-based versus applying deep learning? What steps are you taking there? We're trying to encode what developmental psychologists have found that humans do, human children do. So human children see the world in terms of these image schemas or micro theories or coherent theories of small pieces of the world. So like containment. So if you put an object in a container and you move the container, well, the object moves. Or if you put a book on top of the table and you push the table, well, the book moves or things like that. These fundamental concepts of how the world works. What we're trying to do is build those in so that then anything you learn on top of that or anything you build on top of that has that fundamental understanding already in there so it can learn on top of it. And so one thing I tried to do during my PhD work was start from the beginning, start do everything with learning. And what I found is that in machine learning, what's really important is you have to have the hypothesis space set up correctly. So, and the hypothesis space is a funny word because I can't quite say it. I sound like Elmer Fudd when I try to say it. But what it is, is the space of possible models that your system can learn. So you could have a linear model where the space of possible models is just a linear combination of, of variables or a deep neural network where the the space of possible models is all of the different parameter settings and possibly if you're looking at hyperparameters, a different number of layers and such. So what we want to do is build in these fundamental concepts and then along the way, learn what the hypothesis space of this kind of system is. So then we can try to do full learning later on on top of that. But the first step is to, to build in and then use machine learning to fill little gaps in between concepts, as opposed to trying to do machine learning and do everything the way we're starting to hear from, from DeepMind. And, and a lot of these people have had a lot of success in games like StarCraft, where they just build in, they don't build in very much at all. And they pride themselves on how much the machine can learn. And that is very true. The machine can learn and it does really well. 
but it doesn't generalize well. So if you teach a robot to play StarCraft by using millions of dollars in cloud compute time, and then you have it play some other game, it, it fails because it hasn't learned anything in a generalizable way. So, so, so you're solving this, this unique problem here, and it takes people, it takes talent to do it. One of the questions that I have, and, and my audience is also very interested in, is how did you find your team that you're working with? How did you find the people that you have brought into this or the people who have brought you into this? Where did that connection happen and, and how did you bond? What I do is I do a lot of outreach. I write a lot of blog posts. I give a lot of talks. Well, at the moment, I don't give a lot of talks, but or I do you know things like this, this podcast. And so what happens is often people will hear those and I'll start to form relationships with them over time. So they'll ask me questions like, hey, you brought up this concept. Could it be related to this other thing? And we have like back and forth emails. And through that, I'm able to find people who are interested in the same kinds of problems that I'm in, interested in. I found a great way to do that. Beyond that, there's just a standard ways of, you know, you have a community of people who know what your interests are and what you're looking for. And people are always saying, hey, you should look at this person or this person's interested in this. And so, so it's a combination of, of broad outreach where I try to reach as many people as I can with blog posts and stuff. Hopefully a lot of people see it. And so, you know, a small number of them would be very interested in what we're working on and can contact me and then just the standard channels of people I know. So in terms of your product development, what stage would you say you are? Are you still in the very early R&D phase or are you, are you out trying to get some market validation, putting the product out there to see how it works? We're in the early R&D stage. So, so we believe that this AI, we have this, you know, this huge ambitious goal that it's, it's interesting to say that our goal is to build artificial general intelligence. And that's hugely ambitious and no one has ever done it before. And so we will probably fail. I think we've got as good a chance as anybody because I think our approach is the right one. But what we need to do and what the trick is in artificial intelligence, especially when you're trying to do something this fundamental, is to find uh, little stepping stones along the way where it actually delivers value. So there's this huge gulf in AI between what works and what's actually generalizable. Machine translation is one of those things that is actually works pretty well without having to have actual deep understanding underneath. There aren't actually that many applications of that in AI. It's hard to find. I mean, there are a lot of applications of AI, but what we're trying to find is something in between on the stepping stone that starts from actually trying to build a generalizable system. In Deep Grammar, the Grammar Checker, we were using this kind of machine translation kind of approach, and it worked decently well. It worked better than the things before, but we're finding that it's hard to make it work well enough to be better than a human looking at it. One of the first things we're looking at that might be a useful, a useful stepping stone since we're trying to build this up in simulation is like non-player characters for video games. So currently video games, the uh, non-player characters are fairly stupid. They have like different states that they move around, uh, finite state automata, or they have rule-based systems. And so if we can build actual interesting characters to play against, we think that would be a fairly easy win relatively easy, not easy. 
especially since, as I mentioned, that we're trying to build up in simulation because robots are, physical robots are awfully annoying. They break all the time. They're expensive. They have limited ability to touch the world and sense what they touch. So we're trying to build this up in simulation. So as simulations get better, then uh, robots trained in those simulations will get smarter. So you can imagine back in the 1980s, if you play tank from Atari and then contrast that with something like Grand Theft Auto now, the difference is astounding. So we're hoping that in 10 years, the simulations that underlie video games will be starting to approximate the fidelity of the real world. In which case, if you have an agent that can work in a simulation and the simulation becomes closer to the real world, you have an agent that can work in the real world. Right. And I know what you just said resonates well with me as well. What I heard is a stepping stone based of approach. And I think that works well when you're solving a big problem. You do it through a series of experiments and series of hypothesis testing. Sometimes some of the biggest wins comes from the cross-pollination of experiments that did not work well. And, and I like your perspective on, on starting with video games and see if we can have them simulate the world. And the better they get, more we know, more validation we have to bring it to real world. That's a very unique take at it. In terms of video games, how far are you? Are you just doing it for experimentation or are you also exploring working with or partnering with video game companies on that? We're not very far along on that. We're still working in the experimental stage. And we know one way we can make characters work well in video games is just throw huge amounts of computation at it. So the trick that we're trying to do is we're trying to make characters that play well, but we're restricting them to use these fundamental concepts that children use so that when we move from one game to another, everything transfers over. That's the part we're working on now. We have it working well in, in uh, certain games. We haven't started doing that reach out process where we, we go out to video game makers and say, look, here's what we got. What do you guys think? And video games is one potential market. Another one that we've looked at that's pretty close is simulated training. So the Department of Defense is doing a lot of training in VR now. And, and I, even in the, in the private sector, uh, Walmart and Verizon are doing a lot of training. I remember reading an article about Verizon will train their employees on how to handle a, a robbery. And so I imagine that the character that is doing the robbing is probably pretty scripted. So as you start being able to add intelligence to these characters, they'll, it'll make for a much stronger uh, training experience because you're dealing with something as unpredictable and as smart as a human is. I love how you are perfecting the technology using video games, which is a fairly safe place to train the robots and then taking those learnings and applying it to more important problems in the defense sector. That's very cool. But this is not an easy problem to solve, and I'm sure you're encountering a lot of challenges. So can you take a moment to walk us through some of the challenges you're running into and how you're working around them? I don't know how interesting this is, but the constant challenge we have is the, the same challenge that roboticists have everywhere, either both working those in the physical world and working those in simulation, is it's really hard to debug. So most 
AI is usually like a time invariant function, right? It doesn't matter what's happened in the past. What matters is, is this image a cat or not? Or is this person a likely to repay a loan? Is that car that just zoomed by, is that, does it have our toll tag or not? And the difficulty with robotics is that the thing you want to predict, it may only happen once every, once and very rarely, and it only happens after 10 minutes of being alive in this particular kind of situation. So our challenge is, and uh, sorry, this isn't terribly fascinating for your business-based audience, but the, the challenge is constantly, how can we make debugging tools that tell us what's going on so you can actually see it and get at it and get us to those failure cases quickly. And so we write scenarios where we have to write all these tools where, okay, instead of having to build up everything in your environment or go through all the steps in your environment to get to a point, we need to be able to generate automatically how you are actually at the point where it fails and then surface everything that's going on in the, in the system so we can see where it fails. That's the biggest technical view problem we've had so far beyond the larger technical problem we're working on where we're trying to solve these problems in a way that generalizes. We know AI can now solve problems in ways that don't generalize very well. And so the trick is, okay, how do we write generalizable code and little machine learning sub-problems? And then from the business point of view, the biggest problem is, how do you find someone who's going to invest in this? Because it's a, it's a moonshot. It's a big, it's not something where you're going to have customers lined up six months from now. I mean, the, the machine learning for video games is, is a current market and that is a close one, but that is the closest one. And, but one trouble we would have is our approach is we're trying to use everything we do as a stepping stone to build AGI. And so it's always a balance between our larger goal of AGI and the near-term goal of just getting something that works. How are you funding this? Are you VC funded? How are you getting the funds to spend the time and resources to continue to do this? Yeah, so currently we're funded by the Department of Defense. Okay. And, and that's mostly for the R&D. So where do you see, where do you see it going? Let's say, if we fast forward 12 months from now and then fast forward three years from now, well, what do you see the future? Where do you see the Umbra? We are talking with a, a particular VR company about how we can work together for training. And so 12 months from now, I would envision that they would start to use some of our, some of our algorithms. And in 12 months from now, we would start talking with video game companies and they may start to use some of our algorithms. And then Three years from now, hopefully the algorithms would be in production and you would be playing a game and you're like, wow, this non-player character, it does something different every time. It does something I wouldn't expect. In fact, it, initially what it did didn't make any sense at all, but then I realized it did make sense right before it killed me. And that would be the kind of thing that would be kind of a three-year out. And then as we get out to 10 years... We want to start moving into physical robots because one interesting thing about robotics is that it's finally now to the point where robots can do basic stuff. So for the longest time, I used to have an advisor that would joke that anytime you can get a robot to pick up a pen, you get a PhD. 
Like, oh, he picks up a pen. I got a PhD. And he picks up another pen. Oh, another PhD. So robots couldn't even do this basic stuff of navigating around the house or picking things up or folding laundry. And now we're seeing that they can do these basic tasks. So a robot can now pick up a pen pretty much. It can basically pick up a dish. It can fold a towel if it does so, even if it does so slowly. And so once it does these, now we realize that there's this whole other problem of, okay, now that you can pick up and manipulate objects, how do you actually function in a household? And then you need to know all of this kinds of common sense understanding where that's the kinds of stuff that we're building in. For example, if you have a, a robot in the kitchen and it has a big glass full of water, it needs to know that it can't pour that water into a small glass. And that's not the kind of thing you could get through learning. You wouldn't want the robot to spill a hundred times before it figures that out. That should be obvious. And this is the kinds of problems, these kind of unique one-off problems that you really need reasoning from first principles, reasoning from experience that is grounded in organized concepts, not just some big policy. And so we're hoping that around the 10-year mark, we'll start to use these, we'll start to see robots with common sense and that common sense be built by us. What is your business model? And maybe we just focus on the, the video gaming industry for now. Are you thinking about licensing your product, your algorithms to them? How do you see you going into the market? Yeah, so we would initially see it as with our first customers, it would be like a pilot where they would be getting, from their point of view, they would be getting cheap AI consulting. So we would need to, it would be more of a services-based model for the first few customers while we work to both implement our algorithm in their domain and also make our algorithm more productized. And so after the first few customers, the idea would be, okay, each time we get an additional customer, it takes less human effort to customize the, the domain. And so then it would become a licensing uh, situation. So what role can industry play? What role can those decision makers play to enable you and help you accelerate that journey? So for say, if they're listening to this right now, what would you tell them? What can they do today to help you accelerate this, this amazing journey of teaching robots common sense? Well, one of the biggest things we need is the easiest problems the easiest useful problems that require the least amount of common sense. So we need problems that require common sense, but not too much of it. So like we found with chatbots, like general purpose chatbots, they, they already require too much common sense. So there's got to be other areas where people are running a business. They're like, oh, if a robot only knew that a big thing can't fit in a little thing, then we, you know, then we wouldn't have this problem where it's some set of things that are of that form so it's it could show value right away. So if you're out there and you have a you have a problem that needs just a little bit of common sense but not too much, then please contact your local AI practitioner. Another thing we need is we need just then beyond that, we need just the standard stuff that everybody needs is we need partnerships to where we can integrate this stuff. And I think that that's the kind of stuff that'll probably work just like it does with any other industry. You just, you work together on a pilot and then you productize it over time. The only piece that's unique is that is the thing I mentioned before, where 
there's a there is a big gap between common sense AI and not common sense AI. So if you can put your problem in terms of classification, so all your robot needs to do is classify something, even if it's really complex. You can do that with AI that doesn't require common sense as long as you have enough training data. But if you have something that's different where it needs to give kind of a structured, nuanced response, but still the problem is somewhat bounded, that's what the kind of problem we're looking to solve. What would be an example of a partner that you would like to have? I don't know exactly. So, of course, we want someone who the most important thing is that they can feed us the the problems the domain. So they have some system that needs this AI and we can measure how well their system does with our AI. That's the key with AI is that uh, all of these things, even though we're trying to develop a, an augment, you know, artificial general intelligence, everything is going to be applied to some domain and there's always work to apply it to that domain. So we need someone where we can apply it and then we can measure the, the, the value, the outcome. All right. I'm looking at the clock. It looks like we're at time here. Jonathan, thank you for taking the time out. I really appreciate it. Can you give our audience, if they want to find you, where can they find you? And we'll also link that in our show notes as well. Yeah. So I am on uh, jonathanmugan.com. J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-M-U-G-A-N. I'm also on Twitter at J-M-U-G-A-N. I guess from there, you can pretty much find me anywhere. Sounds good. And we'll also link that in the show notes. So thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for taking the time out. Thank you so much for being here today. If you like what you heard and are interested in more, visit us online at brainsbehind.ai and sign up for my monthly AI startup tracker. That's where I cut through the noise and bring you AI startups that are making tangible progress. Till next time, go out, be the brains behind AI.